Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Steve Jobs and Bill Gates speaking at All Things D in 2007. Uh, one of the most fun things we did was the Macintosh, and that was so risky. Lisa hadn't done that well, and some days it felt a little ahead of its time. Uh, I don't remember that Twiggy disk drive. And... Ah, the Twiggy disk drive, <laughs> yes. <laughs> a few episodes back in The Dirt on Apple Security, someone remarked that Apple was the scene of a battle between the morons running around in suspenders, management, and the guys they keep in closets, engineers. Now, they didn't really mean that, did they? Folklore.org by Andy Hertzfeld Quick, hide in this closet. August 1983 Apple underwent yet another reorganization in 1980, splitting off a new disk division headed by John Vinard. Their responsibilities included developing a hard disk codenamed Pippin and a next-generation floppy drive codenamed Twiggy. Both were intended for the Lisa project and eventually Apple's entire product line. At Rod Holt's request, I had written some early diagnostics for Twiggy using an Apple II. I felt lucky that they transferred Rich Williams instead of me to the disk division when they needed a full-time software guy since focusing exclusively on disks seemed quite limiting. The design of Steve Wozniak's Apple II floppy disk subsystem was way ahead of the rest of the industry, so Apple felt confident that it could continue to extend its lead. Twiggy was a fairly ambitious project, more than quadrupling the capacity of standard floppy disks by doubling the data rate, which required higher-density media and employing other innovative tricks like variable motor speed, which allowed us to pack more bits on outer tracks by slowing disk rotation. The Lisa was designed to include two built-in Twiggy drives, so it made sense to use Twiggy in the Macintosh as well. Twiggy used a WAS-style disk controller, which created a problem for the Lisa designers. The controller required exact timing from the microprocessor and therefore couldn't tolerate interrupts. This was fine for a simple system like the Apple II, but was unacceptable for the more sophisticated Lisa. The Lisa hardware designers, Paul Baker, Bob Peritore, and others, solved the problem by including in chip form a little Apple II complete with its own memory and 2 MHz microprocessor inside the Lisa to control the Twiggy drives. The Lisa also supported an optional external hard drive through a built-in parallel port. As the Twiggy designers encountered unexpected difficulties in achieving acceptable error rates, Lisa came to rely on the hard drive instead. The Twiggy drive was also slower than expected because of the high error rate and the increased seek times that resulted from the variable motor speed trick. You had to wait for the speed change to stabilize. On top of all this, the Lisa operating system designers were used to working on systems that swapped memory to and from disk, which wasn't tolerable at floppy disk speeds. Soon the hard disk became mandatory, upping the minimum price of a Lisa by more than a thousand US dollars. In January of 1983, the Lisa was announced to great fanfare, but it still wasn't ready to ship. There were a lot of problems. 
chiefly the low yield and high error rates of the Twiggy drives, which greatly limited production. Lisas were finally shipped to customers six months later in June 1983, despite these production and reliability problems. Meanwhile, the Macintosh team was beginning to panic. We were using a single Twiggy drive as our floppy disk, and we didn't have a hard disk to fall back on. It looked as though Twiggy was never going to be reliable or cost-effective enough, but we were stuck without an alternative. If we couldn't find a suitable replacement quickly enough, we'd have to slip the entire project indefinitely. Fortunately, George Crow, who was in charge of the Mac's analog board, had heard about Sony's new 3.5-inch floppy drive. A joint project between Hewlett-Packard and Sony, it had just begun shipping that spring. George had come to Apple from Hewlett-Packard, and he was sold on the superiority of the Sony drives. He acquired a drive from his friends at HP and proposed to Bob Belleville that we figure out how to interface it to the Mac as soon as possible while we negotiated a deal with Sony. The Sony drive looked really sweet, especially when compared to the Twiggy. It used the same data rate as Twiggy, but on smaller disks that could fit in a shirt pocket. Best of all, the media was encased in a hard plastic shell, making it much less fragile and more convenient to handle. Steve Jobs eventually acknowledged reality and gave up on the Twiggy drive. When he saw the Sony drive, he loved it and immediately wanted to adapt it for the Mac. But instead of doing the obvious thing and striking a deal with Sony, Steve decided that Apple should take what we learned from Twiggy and engineer our own 3.5-inch drive. We were to work with our Japanese manufacturing partner, Alps Electronics, who manufactured the Apple II floppy drives at a very low cost. This seemed like suicide to George Crow and Bob Belleville. The Mac was supposed to ship in less than seven months. It was preposterous to think that we could get a 3.5-inch drive into production by then, if we could do it at all, given the disk division's dismal track record. But Steve maintained we should design our own drive, and told Bob to cease all work on the Sony drive. He instructed Rod Holt, Bob, and George to fly to Japan and initiate a crash project with Alps. Bob and George grudgingly played along, but they were certain we couldn't pull it off in the allotted time. They hatched an alternative plan to continue working with Sony surreptitiously against Steve's wishes. Larry Kenyon was given a Sony drive to interface to the Mac and was told to keep it hidden, especially from Steve. Bob and George arranged meetings with Sony to discuss the customizations that Apple desired and to hammer out the beginnings of a business deal. This dual strategy entailed frequent meetings with both Alps and Sony, with the added burden of keeping the Sony meetings secret from Steve. It wasn't that hard to do in Japan, since Steve didn't come along, but it got a little awkward when Sony employees had to visit Cupertino. Sony sent a young engineer named Hide Komoto to work with Larry Kenyon. He was sitting in Larry's cubicle with George Crow when we suddenly heard Steve Jobs' voice as he unexpectedly strode into the software area. George knew that Steve would wonder who Komoto-san was if he saw him. 
Thinking quickly, he immediately tapped Komoto-san on his shoulder and spoke hurriedly, pointing at the nearby janitorial closet. Dozo, quick, hide in this closet. Please, now! Komoto-san looked confused, but he got up from his seat and hurried into the dark janitorial closet. He had to stay there for five minutes or so until Steve departed and the coast was clear. George and Larry apologized to Komoto-san for their unusual request. No problem, he replied. But American business practices, they are very strange. Very strange. As predicted, a few weeks later, the Alps team came back with an 18-month estimate for getting their drive into production, and we had to abandon the project. When Bob Belleville revealed that he and George had kept the Sony alternative alive, Steve swallowed his pride and thanked them for disobeying him and doing the right thing. The Sony drives eventually worked out great, and it's hard to imagine what the Macintosh would have been like without them today. Comment on Folklore.org from Carolyn Shemandel, July 2005. I worked at the Apple Disk Division around this time, 1981 to 1984, modifying testing software for Twiggy Disks. John Venard asked me at the coffee area one day what I was doing, one of those big boss making small talk with lowly employees chats, and I told him I had added some new routines to better test the disks for extra and missing bits. He asked, will we get better yield? that is, more disks passing the test. I replied, no, but we'll have more confidence the disks we do pass are good. He asked again, but will we have better yield? I had to tell him again, no. I was very tempted to go back to my desk and modify the software so it would pass everything, giving him his better yield, whether the disk was great or garbage. Epilogue from the LA Times, June 1991. Apple Computer Incorporated said Friday that it will appeal a jury's decision to award what could be millions of dollars in damages to shareholders who had contended that Vice Chairman A.C. Mike Markula Jr. and former Vice President John Vinard misled them about prospects for a disk drive the company was developing in the early 1980s. The Twiggy drive turned out to be a disastrous flop. The company pulled it off the market a few months after it was introduced in 1983. The jury's decision to hold Markula and Venard liable for potentially huge damages stunned Silicon Valley companies, where shareholder suits are common, as well as many in the legal community. Damages will be determined later, but a lawyer for the shareholders said they could reach $40 million. 